Bible, or your Bible that you brought, if you have that, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at the example of the Thessalonian church, which is an example to us of uh, living the gospel or living witnesses to the gospel. Let's read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Actually, I'll read that. You can follow along. Paul, Sildenus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many examples that you've included for our benefit, for our instruction, and particularly this morning, the example of the Thessalonian church. May we uh, be given new insight into what it means to be transformed by the gospel, and particularly what it means to live out our witness of the gospel, both in our words and in our actions, our lives before a watching world and before a watching church. Help us, Father, this morning. Help me as I preach. Uh, help us all as we hear your word to take it in, to be transformed again by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll, uh, Susan told me I was allowed to apologize in advance for <laughs> the slides, which I am not used to. Okay, I've got control, so that's good. Um, but I'll ask your indulgence if I get tripped up a little bit on the slides, I may have to flip around a little. Um, not, not used to doing that. I said in uh, the first chapter of, of First Thessalonians that we have an example of a church, an example of a church that uh, came out of uh, kind of a mixed background. Some of the believers we know from the testimonies of Acts 17 uh, came from the Jewish synagogue. So there were uh, Jews who had some understanding of the Old Testament. There were Greeks who attended that synagogue, so they had some understanding of the Old Testament. There were prominent people in the city, and then there were just outright pagans, which is kind of the focus, in a sense, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That gives a lot of commentators pause and they wonder, you know, are we talking about the Jews who were converted in Acts 17? Are we talking about some other people that aren't really 
emphasized there in Acts 17. The reality is both the Jews, the um, Gentiles, the Greeks who were looking to God and, and hearing the word of God in the synagogue and the pagans in the Thess Thessalonian uh, city, all of these people were churned from idolatry. They were all idolaters and they churned to serve God. So the first chapter of Thessalonians, God has provided an example of one church's reception of the gospel and their living witness to its truth. I bring up this map because I think it helps to get a little sense of where Thessalonica is. I don't think this is going to work. Okay, that'll just bounce off the TV. But you can see my big red arrow, which hopefully um, is clear. So there's a little kind of, uh, I don't know what you call that, a little bit of water that goes up, and then Thessalonica is right there at the tip of that. Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a major trade city in uh, Macedonia, so there were a number of people passing through the city every day. Uh, you'll not be able to see it, but just below where that arrow is pointing, there's a little triangle, and uh, that is Mount Olympus, which if you know anything about Greek mythology, my son back there is nodding his head, Mount Olympus was presumably the place where the gods dwelled. So the Thessalonians were in view of Mount Olympus. They could see that peak, uh, and they had a reminder every day of these idols, these gods that they had manufactured uh, that they presumably served. I want to look at Acts 17 just briefly, just to get, again, a little bit of background on uh, exactly what happened. Uh, Acts 17 describes the reception Paul, Silas, and Timothy received in Thessalonica. It was positive among some, but uh, in general, as uh, I'll mention when we look a little bit later in Acts 17, uh, the Thessalonian reception was not good. So there were some strong words said in Acts 17 later when Paul and Silas and Timothy went on to Berea about their reception in Berea compared to the reception in Thessalonica. The Bereans were more noble, Paul says, than these Thessalonicans. Uh, and while they were in Thessalonica, they underwent some persecution. So in uh, Acts 17 there, you have it on the screen, it says, Paul went in, as was his custom, into the synagogue of, of the Jews in Thessalonica, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, that is, Paul and the others, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the degrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, as the narrative continues in Acts 17, we find out that the brothers had Paul and Silas and Timothy leave by night for Berea. They went to Berea. They had a better reception of the gospel in uh, that city. Acts 17.11 says, The Jews there in Berea were more noble 
and received the word with eagerness. They were daily searching the scriptures. We're all familiar with that passage, I think. There are a lot of churches called the Berean Church of, uh, mostly Baptist churches, I think. Um, the Berean Church of, you know, scripture searching. Uh, so these were more noble, the way that they received the message that Paul and Silas and Timothy brought. Again, this message was the word of God. It was based on the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul could go into the synagogue and expound from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, on the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the significance of the resurrection uh, of Christ was necessary. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to be raised from the dead in order to fulfill all the things that are written of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, driven out of Thessalonica in Berea, had a good reception. Then these Thessalonican Jews, and uh, the word rabble is used, so we're not talking about uh, Jewish identity uh, in the, the racial sense, <laughs> but we're talking about a, a group of people who were raising an uproar and opposing the preaching of the gospel, opposing what Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing. They found out that they were preaching in Berea. They pursued them to Berea and got them driven out of, of Berea as well. So these were um, some uh, persistent opponents of the gospel. Uh, so Paul did not get to stay in Thessalonica long, is the point. We hear in Acts 17 he was there for three Sabbaths, so um, very brief time that he was able to preach the gospel in the synagogue. A church was established during that time because uh, Jason was one of the leaders of the church. Jason is mentioned in other parts of the New Testament as accompanying apostles on uh, various ministry journeys. Um, so the church was established, but Paul didn't really know much beyond that. And he wanted to know more. What happened to these believers? How can I encourage and strengthen them in their faith? How can I ensure that this church doesn't just fall apart under the, the pressure of this opposition from the synagogue there in Thessalonica? So eventually, uh, and 1 Thessalonians 3 tells us this in particular, he sent Timothy back to look at the state of the church to potentially minister to them uh, in terms of preaching and in terms of uh, discipleship, one-on-one -on -one kind of work, and Timothy came back with a good report. Significant uh, for this morning, though, is what we read of the early believers in Thessalonica. They had it rough. Um, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. We shouldn't read that paragraph as we might be tempted to, you know, they, they sort of pulled them roughly by the arms. They literally dragged them. Uh, there was violence uh, that was uh, poured out on Jason and some of these other brothers in the church. They dragged them before the authorities. That wouldn't have been pleasant. They uh, denounced them in terms of their adherence to the law. So they denounced them as evildoers and wrongdoers. Uh, and then they were forced to pay fines uh, in order to leave. So there was financial oppression. There was physical oppression and violence. They underwent a great deal of uh, oppression. But in spite of that, in spite of that, there was joy in the church of the Thessalonians because they recognized that when Satan and the world is so opposed to the message that they are doing something right, that the gospel that they lived and proclaimed was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul describes for us the example of that gospel, not only that gospel going forth to the Thessalonians, but the gospel um, going forth from the Thessalonians 
And that in particular makes uh, the Thessalonians an example for us. So I want to real briefly, and I, I mean that, <laughs> real briefly <laughs> recap. I don't, they, might, they might be the same. Real briefly recap. So um, verses uh, 1 through 3 of, of 1 Thessalonians 1 uh, particularly talk about and, and give the introduction to us of the Thessalonian church as an example of a church constituted by the power of God. Uh, this is a church that's living in a vital relationship to Jesus Christ, and these verses in particular speak of the life of the church, verses 1 through 3. These are uh, believers who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are marks of that vital relationship with Jesus. They have working faith, they have laboring love, and they have steadfast hope. So those marks are the result of their being engrafted into the family of God, they're being united to Jesus Christ by faith uh, as a product of the ministry of Paul the Apostle and Silas and Timothy when they came through evangelizing the Thessalonians. And then verses 4 and following speak uh, to the example of the church in receiving that good news. So they were receptive to it, they received the word of God, and then witnessing to it in word and deed. So they not only bore witness in uh, verbal terms, in, in their words. They not only repeated the message that uh, the Apostle Paul in particular had brought to the church, the saving message of the gospel, but they also witnessed to the gospel in their, in their deeds, rather, their actions, their lives. And those two go together in, in witnessing, in our witness. Uh, and that was such that their witness was known both at home and abroad. So, that was brief. <laughs> that brings us to the sermon. That wasn't even it. <laughs> Today we're going to consider this living witness to the gospel by the Thessalonians and the implications of that for our own witness. Uh, looking at verses 8 through 10 in particular, and if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open because I'll be referring to the text quite a bit. Um, looking at those verses in particular, we see that the Thessalonian church is an example of the evangelical, and, and I use that word uh, specifically, um, the evangelical pattern of receiving the word, being transformed by the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and then subsequently spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to others. The main idea you see there on the screen this morning is that Jesus gathers his sheep or builds his church through the church's living witness to the gospel. So even in the apostolic period, Jesus planted churches by the work of the apostles. Uh, the, the apostles were uh, pioneers, as it were, going out into truly unchurched areas and planting churches, uh, establishing the work. But the, the means by which Jesus gathers his sheep, the means by which he gathered his sheep into those churches was the witness of those particular churches. And that uh, certainly comes into view when we look at the example of the Thessalonians. Um, again, this is evident from the way that the gospel reached the Thessalonians uh, through the work of the apostle and, and Silas and Timothy, 
and their subsequent proclamation of it, the evidence of it in their lives, and they're spreading it throughout the region. And Paul says, everywhere, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Think about that. I don't have that map up, but think about that with regard to that, that map that I had up earlier. Everywhere, Paul says, the word about the Thessalonian reception of the gospel has gone out. Uh, so that he doesn't have to say anything, which is, uh, for a preacher, also kind of a remarkable thing to say. So our first uh, point, then, the word of the gospel rings out. Verse 8 of First Thessalonians 1 says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we need not say anything. The word that uh, we're focusing on there, uh, in terms of point one, is that the word of the Lord has sounded forth. That's a, a verb, it's a unique verb that uh, only occurs here in the New Testament, I believe. I'm 99.9% .9 sure that that's the case. Um, and it, it means um, that the gospel rang out, that, that the word of the Thessalonians when they were spreading the gospel rang out like uh, pealing bells or thunder or the sound of a trumpet. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. And we saw the picture of that in Acts 17. The word of God uh, is first the substance of that message. So what is the word of the gospel? What is it that rang out in terms of the verbal witness of the church uh, at Thessalonica? What was it that they were sharing with their neighbors in, in the city and sharing with people who would pass through and carry that message on to other cities? Uh, it was the word of the Lord. Uh, again, looking at verse 8, I've got it highlighted there. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel message, is the word about the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Acts 17 boldly proclaimed in the synagogue. And think about uh, the Jewish reception that he often had in the synagogue when he proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He boldly proclaimed going to the synagogue and, and preaching about Jesus, boldly proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died and was raised, and this was necessary to redeem the remnant of his people. The gospel and our gospel message, the substance of the words that we speak to those around us is not about uh, events and places, but primarily about a person, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. So when we read, not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth, it's very deliberate. The word of the Lord is the word of the gospel. And there are various components to that. I, I uh, don't have time to trace through uh, some of the language, especially in the Old Testament, with regard to the sound of trumpets and the sound of thunder and the association of that with the day of the Lord and coming judgment and the redemption of the people of God, the redemption, the saving of the remnant of God's people in the last days. But that certainly comes into view here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, especially verse 10, where we read about the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? We'll get to that. So the substance of the word is the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. Then uh, the question is, how did the Thessalonians receive that word? So we see that they, they rang out with this word of the gospel. Um, but in other places, we have a little more uh, 
information about how they received that word. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, I'll look at the bottom verse first. Uh, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Paul, when he received the word, made a break. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus. There was a hard break with his past, with his past as a persecutor of the church, with his past as a Pharisee, his past as a representative of uh, Jewish religion, Jewish religious ideals, uh, and his past as the, the protector, in a sense, the violent persecutor and protector of the Jewish faith. He broke with that when he became a Christian, when he was thrown to his knees and blinded on the road to Damascus by the power of God. Paul made a clean break. And the Thessalonians also, in their imitation of Paul and their imitation of Christ, made a clean break with their past. We'll see more of that as we look uh, further in, in the three verses we're considering. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 gives us a little more information. Uh, we saw some of this in Acts 17. Um, Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of, of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So they not only received it in persecution and affliction, but they received it as the word of God. They received it as what it actually is, the very word of God. Uh, we might say, drawing on verse 9 of, of 1 Thessalonians 1, they received it as the word of the living God, the word of God applied by his spirit to his people. And then because it's the word of God and because it's applied by the spirit, they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received it joyously. There's one more point I want to make about their reception of this word, and that is this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 say, For we know, we know, not we think, we're pretty sure, we've got a fair level of, of uh, appreciation for the possibility of, there's no hedging at all. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. Paul is saying, we know, Paul and Silas and Timothy, we know that you are elect, that you are chosen by God. Now, why does Paul make that statement? I think part of the, the thrust of the Thessalonian letters, of these letters to the churches, the first and second Thessalonians, is uh, there's some, some misapprehension, misunderstanding perhaps, of the end times with the Thessalonians. What time is the end? When does the end come? How will we be saved from, from the wrath of God? Is that a certainty? And Paul is allaying those fears, and this is part of evangelism, incidentally, we'll talk about that. Um, Paul is allaying those fears by saying, we know, we know that you are elect, we know that you are loved by God. Why? Because you received the word, you received the word in power and by the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, power and the Holy Spirit probably refer primarily to the preaching of the word by the apostle. So the apostle, when he preached the word, when he preached the gospel in the synagogue, he preached it with power, and that particularly by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit taking that word and applying it to the hearts of those, those people who were listening, who were made receptive by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So you receive the word in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or full assurance. Uh, and that perhaps uh, is targeted more toward the reception on the part of the hearers. They received it with full assurance of the truth, the reality of what Paul was proclaiming in the gospel about Jesus Christ. When Paul proclaimed the resurrection, they heard this proclamation of the gospel and they received it with assurance because the Holy Spirit was at work in their hearts. And then their lives subsequently bore witness to it. So they were receptive to the gospel by the grace of God. It's very important. They didn't receive the gospel because they, oh, I was just reading Isaiah, and this kind of sounds like something I'm interested in. Maybe I'll follow up on it. They didn't choose God. They didn't have any reason to do that. They didn't have any uh, opportunity even, in a sense, to do that, to choose God in the midst of this persecution. Uh, no, they received the word because they were made receptive by the grace of God. And then the result of that is that, I'm not going to the next slide, sorry. The result of that is they proclaimed the good news that they now knew. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. Again, that's unique here, a unique word. Uh, it's used to describe in other Greek literature, peals of thunder, trumpet blast, loud sounds, and the idea is that not only did the sound go out, um, you know, someone didn't stand in the marketplace and cry out and, you know, they might have heard them three blocks over, but probably not much further than that. No, the idea is that the word of the Lord rang out from the church, from this congregation, throughout the known world. So that ringing out wasn't confined to a small, isolated community in the city of Thessalonica. It was everywhere, Paul says. It rang out throughout the world. And that message, uh, the result, that, that good news that they proclaimed, that message included their witness to the change that the word had wrought in them. So Paul says, not only, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So not only did the word of God go forth, the gospel message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to his people, by his stripes we are healed, as we've heard. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died on the cross, bore the punishment for sin so that the wrath of God would be appeased. He propitiated God's wrath. And because of his work, because of his life, his righteous life, his death and his resurrection, his righteousness is applied to us in salvation. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're made acceptable to God. Therefore, we need not fear condemnation anymore from God. So the message not only included that gospel, but how that gospel affected them personally, their lives. When that message went out, it wasn't just the gospel message, though certainly that was the, the paramount thing, the primary thing, but it also included what effect that message had had on the lives of these believers. They bore witness to the change that God had effected in their lives in words. So this is different than um, what's sometimes called you know, relationship evangelism or you know, I don't know what you call it, lifestyle evangelism. I'm kind of, I'm being a Christian, I'm doing my thing, and people are gonna see it and go, oh, Jesus. Um, not quite. This is word, word evangelism still. We're still talking about proclamation. 
this message, the proclamation included their testimony of what God had done for them. And that's very important for us to take away as we look at the Thessalonian church as an example of proclaiming the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the work of God. We proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. We also proclaim what Jesus has done for us. Paul says, uh, again, remarkably, so that we need not say anything. Their witness was so faithful as they went throughout the world. And, and these Thessalonians, Jason, uh, we think, at least uh, just studying kind of the history and the culture of Thessalonica, was probably um, some kind of well-to-do uh, person in the city, so perhaps well-positioned, perhaps wealthy, not 100% sure, but certainly the Thessalonian church supported a lot of ministry uh, efforts. Um, but as these people, just normal people, as they went out from the city on their business, they took with them the proclamation of the gospel. They shared that gospel in words to uh, those that they met with. And they were so faithful, so faithful that Paul encountered that message from them, the unique testimony of the Thessalonian church to the power of the gospel. Uh, he encountered that throughout uh, his journeys. They laid a foundation, in a sense, for the work of the apostles in the rest of the world as that gospel preceded the apostles coming and planting churches and uh, ministering among them. They shared the gospel just as Paul and Silas and Timothy had. Uh, our witness, like that of the church, is to what God has said as well as what is God, uh, God has done among us. And we rejoice that God is at work we rejoice, and that allows us to endure all manner of hardship. Now, they had great trials and suffering in uh, the city of Thessalonica because of the gospel as a result of that. As a result of their own proclamation, they endured suffering. We don't see that kind of suffering. We're not um, violently opposed at this point in this country. You might think, you know, somebody poo-pooing your Facebook post is violent, but <laughs> not really. We haven't seen this level of persecution yet, but we may. We may be in a position uh, relatively soon, possibly, where we will, we will be on the receiving end of violent opposition from those who worship idols, those who serve them, as we seek to continue to tear down those structures in our society. That brings us to the second point. Let's see where I am on slides. There we go. The evidence of the gospel spreads out. The evidence of the gospel spreads out. So there are a few things I want to focus on, and uh, I'll try to keep this brief. These are evidences of the effect of the gospel in the church that spread out from Thessalonica. And these evidences, now these are different than the words that spread out. These are the observations, the evidence of the power of the gospel at work in the lives of these people. These bore witness to the transformation that the Holy Spirit had effected in the church. First of all, their changed lives. Scripture says they turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols. This, uh, in brief, meant a decisive break with their old way of life and their culture. They could no longer continue living in a society the way that they had. Um, and note that that's part of their witness. Part of their witness is the way that their lives changed as a result of the gospel taking hold among them. So Richard Phillips says, um, the idols here were symbols of civic identity and sources of communal identity for those who saw in them a source of protection and prosperity. 
To demand that converts to Christ should churn from idols was virtually to disenfranchise them from the polis, that city, and the trade guilds. And remember, Mount Olympus was right there. Every day, the Thessalonians uh, could wake up and look a little bit south of the city and see the peak of Mount Olympus. Uh, so it was very important to the city that their idols, their idolatry not be disrupted. And it was so ingrained, the worship of these idols, the worship of these gods, in, uh, as Richard Phillips says, their civic and communal identity, that for them to reject idols was essentially to reject the society that they were living in. They were making themselves strangers and aliens in the land. Uh, and lest we think that that's not applicable to us, we look around and say, well, I don't see. I mean, maybe, um, you know, the Hindu religion is coming in more and more in the United States, and we see literal idols uh, in religions like that. But we might think, in general, this isn't applicable to our society, turning from idolatry. Uh, but in fact, turning from idolatry to the living and true God is a theme throughout Scripture because without God, we are idolaters. We heard over the last few weeks there are two kinds of people, not black and white. <laughs> there are two kinds of people. There are those who serve God, and there are those who reject God. There are enemies of God, and there are God's servants. There are those who serve idols and make idols, fashion idols, idols after their own likeness, and there are those who serve the living and true God, two kinds of people. Without God, we are idolaters. Uh, I think Tim Keller expresses this well. This is a long quote, so I will um, not read it fast, but, well, maybe I will read it fast. Tim Keller says, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols, so that includes us. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios, stadiums, etc., where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. And then he gives some examples. Uh, we may not have a statue of Aphrodite in a temple that we go to and kneel before this idol, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. Uh, very common. We might, might not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. We all know examples of that. We all know people. Uh, we're all ourselves tempted by wealth and prestige to um, focus on that and not on the things of God. Keller goes on to say, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil. So by that definition, we all are uh, aware of the idolatry in our culture. Now by implication, if God is living and true, then idols are not. Idols do not possess life, nor do they pass life on to others. That might seem kind of trite. There's a lot we could say here. The Old Testament has a tremendous emphasis uh, in a lot of passages on the foolishness of idolatry. Um, this is an example, Psalm 115, a great psalm to read 
on the subject of idolatry, I can't read it all, but that highlighted portion at the end of this small passage, those who make them, those who fashion idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. That is, they become empty, meaningless, uh, nothing, uh, void, essentially. Or Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, idols are stupid and foolish, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Again, the wrath of God is coming because of idols. That's why we're told throughout the New Testament to flee idolatry as Christians. The Thessalonians rejected the idolatry of their age just as we're called to reject the idols of our age in our service to God. This implies a new orientation. So that new orientation, they turn from idols, so it's as if they were here bowing to idols and then churned. They've completely reoriented now to serving the living and true God. It's the only other option as we've seen. We're slaves to sin, to idols, to self, or we're slaves to righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll not read this, but Romans 6, chapter 21 through 23, you can uh, examine later. There are two options. Now that you've been set free from sin, Christian, now that you are no longer serving sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification in its end rather than death, which is the end of idolatry and service to sin. And then I like this uh, quote from John Calvin in this regard. No one, therefore is properly converted to God, but the man who has learned to place himself wholly under subjection to him. If you're not serving God wholly, you're serving idols. There there are only two options. That's why God talks about lukewarmness, because we have this idea, I think, that we can sort of partially serve God. Well, serve God on Sundays. I'll do some of the things I need to do. I'll look good in front of my Christian friends, uh, make sure I seem like an upstanding citizen, but in reality, our hearts are far from God. Uh, Beware the the draw the pull of idolatry pulls us away from god it pulls us away from christ this change of orientation that change from idols to serving the living and true god um, resulted in the thessalonians waiting expectantly for the return of jesus the hope of their future now was firmly fixed on jesus christ who delivers us from the wrath to come this is another, uh, this waiting expectantly is another unique word only used here in the New Testament. It implies patient expectation and trust in the promises of God. And this waiting is both active and passive. They're looking, they're looking with certain hope toward the future, this future coming of Jesus Christ and the, the certainty of their preservation from the wrath of God. At the same time, they're preparing for the coming of Jesus. They're active in obedience. They're following Christ in the interim. There's a couple passages here that that support particularly this idea that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. We have certainty. We have a certain hope in our future as a result. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5. And then in Hebrews 9, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin,
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the sin has been dealt with. The sin, the penalty for sin was dealt with at the cross. And by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated his power. Jesus will come again. He will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Of that, we have no doubt. And we will not be subject to the wrath of God in that day if we have truly repented, churned from idolatry to serve the living and true God. So we don't fear the end times, and we'll hear a lot more about that in the next three years, <laughs> or however long it is. We don't fear the end times, as uh, many in our culture do, but we eagerly await Christ's return as we live in the end times. We're living in the end times now. So the last point here, and I'll get through this, I promise. The people of God go out and make disciples. So again, kind of to wrap all this up, there there are these two aspects of um, the, the witness of the Thessalonian church. They received the word of God, They bore witness to it in their words. They bore witness to it in their lives. The gospel transformed them. They bore witness to that transformation in their words. And then they lived out the gospel as they uh, lived among each other in in the the body of Christ and as they lived in the midst of a fallen and uh, idolatrous world. This is the result of the reception of the gospel in Thessalonica. Um, They shared the good news wherever they were. So whether at home or abroad, they were in a posture of wanting other people to hear this gospel that had so affected them and their church. And that's the pattern of evangelism. The word is preached primarily and shared mouth to mouth. One uh, commentator calls that holy gossip, which I kind of like, um, kind of like, have you heard about this, this uh, gospel? Let me, let me tell you something that's, that's pretty interesting takes root in hearts by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Those transformed people, disciples of Jesus, then go out and make more disciples by living lives transformed by the power of the gospel and by speaking, by sharing the word of the Lord. Those two elements are both there. There's no lifestyle evangelism. I know there's a book um, that describes kind of, you can just live your life and people will see your good works and glorify God. I think that's an abuse of that, that passage. There's no lifestyle evangelism without words, nor is there evangelism in the sense of words without faithful lives to go along with it. Faith without works is dead, we know, and no witness to the power of the gospel at work in the lives of believers. So in conclusion, let me see where we're at here. Okay. First, the question, have you heard the good news of the gospel and received it? Have you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the the place we have to start. Have you, in fact, turned from idols? Um, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Only God knows the heart. Uh, We need to seriously consider our state before God. Have we turned from idols? Have we repented? Have we trusted truly in Jesus Christ for uh, the satisfaction of the wrath of God? Are we truly looking forward with a joyful hope to the second coming? Can we really say, come Lord Jesus, uh, with a smile on our faces? It's a very important question to ask ourselves. And then, if you've received the good news, if the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart, transforming your will so that you more and more follow Christ in all things, are you ringing out with the gospel message? Is the gospel message 
uh, pealing, as it were, like thunder, like bells? Are you taking advantage of opportunities that God's given you to share the word? And that's a question not only to you as individuals, but to us as a church. Are we really taking advantage of these opportunities that we've been given in this community around us to share the gospel? Christianity Explored is a wonderful example of that, taking advantage of every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. God, help us to both share the word of the Lord, the good news of the gospel, and to live as faithful examples, consistently witnessing to the transforming power of the gospel before a watching world and a watching church. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the gospel of your son. Thank you that he came and died in our place so that we might have freedom, freedom to serve, freedom to be slaves of righteousness. Thank you for his sacrifice, that he bore the the wrath on the cross, the full wrath that was due us for violating the commandments of a holy God, an infinitely, infinitely holy God. Thank you for his righteousness that's applied to us. And thank you that we have bold access to the throne and a certainty of hope for the future in Christ. We pray that uh, those things would create in our hearts great joy as the Holy Spirit continues to work in us and apply the word. We pray that that joy would result in an outpouring of witness, that we would seek to proclaim to those around us by our words, by our lives, what Jesus has done for us. Help us, we ask, uh, in ourselves we're incapable of any of this, but we know that it's your will, we know that your Holy Spirit is at work in us to do your good pleasure. We ask that we would see the fruits of that uh, even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.